one particularly astute writer describes patience as the quality that you admire in the driver behind you, but can't stand in the driver in front of you. <laughs> it's also been said, obviously, mostly by dads, that if you buy sod for your yard, you don't have the patience to grow your own. You want instant grassification, <laughs> which, by the way, for... For those of you uh, old enough to remember, that sounds vaguely like something George W. Bush would have said when he was in office. But I think those dumb-sounding malaprops and mispronunciations were mostly for him, nothing but a big facade. <laughs> By the way, um, I can't think of that joke without thinking that grow your own had a very different connotation uh, growing up in Southern California in the 70s, um, but I digress. I don't know about you, but I have a persistent problem with patience. If it is indeed a virtue, it's a virtue, a vir virtue that I possess only minimally. I think it's, it's probably no secret to most of you that I practice one of the same disciplines every day year during Lent. I force myself to always drive in the farthest right lane and always choose the longest line wherever I go to teach me patience. That's why I am so glad always that the Sundays in Lent are Sundays in Lent and not Sundays of Lent because we get released from some of those disciplines because Lent Sunday is always a feast day. We don't fast on Sundays. So every Sunday, I just get to drive like a bat out of hell and be totally impatient in the store. I'm totally kidding about that. But I do get out of the slow lane and look for the shortest line. I am, however, a hopeless recidivist. But I do, I do want it. I want I want patience. I feel like I embody really well the, I, the ironic protest chant. What do we want? Patience. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> I read something Thomas Stirner wrote in his book, The Practicing Mind, agonizingly true. The problem with patience and discipline is that it takes both to develop each. <laughs> this is important because in the time leading up to Advent and during Advent itself, we are told over and over again to prepare, to wait with patience for the coming of the Lord, past and future. And so, at least for me, it's somewhat refreshing in the second week of Advent that we, along with the original recipients of Peter's second epistle, which is where we're going to spend most of our time looking uh, at that passage from chapter 3, verses 8 through 18 this morning. It's refreshing for me and them, I'm sure, that we are strongly encouraged not to focus on our own patience, but instead to savor and rest in the gracious patience of the Lord. 
Second Peter was written more than three decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and was among the last New Testament books written. In fact, the writings of St. Paul were already widely known, as Peter makes note of in this passage in verse 15. That letter came to a mercilessly persecuted generation tormented over the delay they'd experienced in waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Those early Christians, many of whom had suffered unspeakable brutality at the hands of Nero, had been living in the hope and expectation of the Lord's return at any time, and false teachers had come among them, scoffing at the quote-unquote delay of the Lord's return, and they'd grown understandably fatigued and, and distressed. And this letter, <coughs> Second Peter, was written specifically to strengthen them. It's wonderfully comforting to compare God's patience regard for us with the Advent refrain of waiting patiently for him, to see that while we may be impatient and need to learn how to wait, it's actually an essential part of God's dealing with us that he himself is prepared to wait. He gives us time, time to prepare for him and time to receive and respond to him rightly. He's wonderfully patient and his patience with us flows directly from his love for us. St. John wrote in 1 John uh, 4.16, we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. God is love. And among love's many attributes, patience tops the list written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13. It begins, and you can probably quote at least the first part of it from having heard it at nearly every single Christian wedding you've ever been to. Love is what? It's patient. Love is patient. And what follows? We all know it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. And it's these three attributes of love, patience, kindness, and not insisting on its own way, which is a negative way of stating the positive attribute of tolerance and forbearance that I want to underline today. Because God's love for us, the archetype of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is patient and kind and forbearing. And it's these three attributes Paul then uses to reveal the impetus for true repentance in Romans 2 verses 4 and five, don't presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience when you forget that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. 
without denying the reality of God's righteous anger or judgment for the unrepentant and unprepared, a consistent theme in the readings leading up to and during Advent, Paul discloses the attributes that motivate true repentance, and they're not fear and wrath and anger and hell. Rather, it's God's patience and kindness that leads us to repentance and allows us time, time to learn to love him too, time to repent, time to prepare, time to rid ourselves of those things in our lives that are unworthy of him, to make the rough places plain and the paths straight to receive him. That was the point of the beginning of Mark's introduction of John the Baptist in Mark 1 that we read today. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark is referencing Isaiah's proclamation of Israel's deliverance from Babylonian captivity, where they had learned that God, through the long delayed from their perspective, would indeed come to rescue them and allow them to start a new life. In Isaiah verse, chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, which is also the soaring tenor recitative of Handel's Messiah following its haunting overture, which ends in a heavy minor chord. And if you know the oratorio, you can just hear its incandescent beauty now. Prepare, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Say it to your God. I would sing it for you, but I would ruin Messiah for everyone in the room. Speak ye comfortably or tenderly to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. Her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. These towering words of consolation and restoration come to a people who have suffered greatly in the destruction of their homes and city. And, and, and in 70 years of exile in Babylon, and they had learned from what happened in history about God as the one who comes to the rescue as he did in Egypt. And they celebrated the idea of his coming in the words that John the Baptist quoted, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist's sole role, his sole aim, was to prepare people for the coming of Messiah. And to prepare them, he called them to one thing, <laughs> repentance, to turn around from their sin and neglect and compromise and moral laziness. That's what repentance means. No excuses. No minimizing. No blame shifting. Repentance is being morally honest. It is casting yourself without excuse upon the kindness of the one against whom you have erred. 
in John's day, as in ours, repentance was preparation for the coming of the Lord and the incarnation of Jesus. The barriers to be removed, the valleys to be lifted up, and the, the rough places to be made plain were not physical, but were within the hearts of the people, as Mark says in Mark 1, 4, and 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when Jesus did come, he taught about a, a further coming of the kingdom of the heavens where everything, past, present, and future, would again be put right. And everything sad, in the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, would come untrue. Something C.S. Lewis also wrote in chapter 9 of The Great Divorce, where he said, Some mortals say of temporal suffering, no further, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. After Jesus died, rose again on the third day, and appeared to them. His disciples saw the beginning of those very things in the triumph, in Jesus' triumph over sin and death, and they looked forward after his ascension to the completion of this victory when he would appear to them again. And it was three decades later when a new generation of Christians had risen up and they were desperately longing for this final coming of the Lord and they were encouraged instead to remember the patience of God. This is important in what theologians call the economy of salvation. God gives us time to be ready for him. In God's economy, if we'll just come forward into the light of his holiness, freely exposing the depth of our guilt, we're guaranteed to receive limitless pardon from sin and unconditional and complete reconciliation with God. And it's an act of of pure love by our patient Heavenly Father that we're allowed to live as Peter's first readers did in a time or a season of grace, which is why he told us in the passage we read today, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. One of the earliest recorded Christian prayers was, Come, Lord Jesus. It's actually the petition with which the book of Revelation ends in chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> these last verses of the Bible <clears throat> pardon me, reveal just how important Jesus' return was to the first Christians. It was something they longed for, but as time went on, and many of the original believers, and especially some of the apostles, died. And some began to doubt, and false teachers sprung up, saying, He's not coming. Your faith is fantasy. Messiah, quote-unquote, is nothing more than wishful thinking for weak minds. Do you hear any of that in the public square today? Because, you know, most of what modern opponents 
Christianity say is far from being new or clever, although they say it as if it's original with them. Christians have always contended with much the same kind of contempt, as in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Know that, first of all, that scoffers will come in that day with scoffing. Well, of course, it, this makes total sense. How else would scoffers come other than with scoffing? That's what makes them scoffers. They scoff. They will come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For every since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The cosmos, in the infamous words, infamous words of Carl Sagan, is all there is. Everything else is fantasy, and to believe otherwise is stupidity, naivete, and foolishness. But all this will happen, the Holy Spirit says, in God's good time. And God's time is not our time. Second Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In John Wesley's explanatory notes on the New Testament, of, of Second Peter, of this passage, he writes, a thousand years are as one day. That is, no delay is long to God. Therefore, he is forbearing and he gives us time for repentance without any inconvenience to himself. With God, time passes neither slower nor swifter than is suitable to him and his economy. I've often wondered if this writing by Wesley wasn't at least partially behind Tolkien with the voice of Gandalf saying, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Although, being a, a Roman Catholic, I doubt whether Tolkien was sitting around reading a lot of Wesley. But similarly, Jesus, and I'm not comparing Jesus to a wizard, will arrive precisely when God the Father means him to. And the delay is for our sakes. God is patient because of his kind and gracious love for us. Though God's judgment will not be delayed forever. And when Christ does return, it will be sudden and without warning, like the strike of a thief, there will be no place to hide. The earth and every person's works on earth will be exposed. Literally in Greek, will be found out. This won't be a cosmic redecorating, but rather a cataclysmic refining so that God, through Jesus Christ, can make not all things new, but all new things. I mean, not all new things. Sorry, I just said that exactly the opposite of how I meant it. 
and stumbled into a little bit of heresy there. Totally inadvertent. Not all new things, but all things new. And knowing there's an end, a time when all will be revealed and be exposed, we ought to live lives that evidence our understanding of that reality, to be paying attention, which as that guy noted last week, is not only a general principle of well-being, but also a specific vocation of God's people waiting in such a way as to see God seeing us, to look into his face of grace and peace and glory, to know that we are fully known. I love that. I, in fact, to get this quote from him, I had to write to him yesterday and ask him for a copy of his sermon. And I told him, I said, I can't remember what you said, but I remember saying, hmm, So send me the whole thing and I'll figure it out. You see, God isn't indolent, but is instead patient. Not with just us, but not wishing that anyone should perish and that everyone should reach repentance and know that know God's face of grace and peace and glory to know as they are fully known, which ought always drive our shared vision of proclaiming and promoting the gospel, though some will reject both it and them. Part of the wisdom of this penitential season of Advent is stepping back, turning around, changing our perspective in order to understand that we might at times what we might at times see as God's slowness is actually a gift to us evidence of his chesed love steadfast unyielding patient there's a famous story that's told about saint francis of assisi probably apocryphal but maybe not because it is consistent with his character. It's said that one day Francis was busily hoeing a row in the vegetable garden in his monastery when a novice ran up and exclaimed excitedly that he'd heard that the world would end in 15 minutes. Breathlessly, he asked, what are you going to do, Brother Francis? And calmly, Francis answered, I'm going to finish hoeing these beans. See, Francis could wait his 15 minutes in peace because he was prepared. He'd already made good use of his time of grace, thanks entirely to the patience of God. Wouldn't it it be amazing to eat and drink, to, to spend our leisure, to relate to our friends, to tend our gardens, to have sex, and love our families, and serve our neighbors, and work in our vocations in such a way that we'd be pleased and at peace if that's what we were doing when Jesus returns in glory. I think that's a little of what it might be to be prepared, to pay attention. There's probably no better picture of waiting preparedly for God who will in his own good time come to us than to imagine Francis 
with his garden hoe. He obviously knew the promise of the day of the Lord from 2 Peter 3, 13 through 15. Well, in accordance with his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish. <coughs> and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen.